Hi there, Money on the Left and Superstructure listeners. This is Scott Ferguson again. I am here to introduce part two of my lecture on Toy Story. It's from my larger series on the neoliberal New Hollywood blockbuster that is available for our Patreon subscribers. Uh, if you're interested in supporting what we're doing here at the Money on the Left Editorial Collective, I urge you to go to patreon.com forward slash M-O-L superstructure forward slash M-O-L superstructure. In the first part of my Toy Story lecture, I discussed the rise of Pixar as an industrial, technological, and aesthetic force uh, in... Um, the, mostly the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, and we discussed the work of a, a major contributor, scholarly contributor, to uh, debates about digital effects and digital animation, Stephen Prince. I had some, uh, some things to learn from this, uh, from this scholar, but also uh, some things to critique. And if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to the first part of this lecture, I highly recommend you stop what you're listening to here, go back, um, make your way through um, that material, and then come back here for the second lecture where um, I start out by turning to the work of a particular late 20th century uh, psychoanalyst named Thomas Ogden whose work has been really influential for me for thinking about not just blockbusters, but also how we relate to political economy, money, um, uh, the broad history of, of Western visual culture, including painting. Uh, for those of you who are regular listeners to Superstructure, uh, you would have heard uh, Ogden's ideas come up, uh, sometimes just implicitly. So this is a chance for you all to hear about Ogden's ideas um, more directly in a more fleshed out way. And after that, uh, I turn to Toy Story itself, and I situate Toy Story in its context in the mid-90s, in the middle of the Clinton uh, era, the rising dot-com boom, the uh, persisting precarity and um, uh, anxieties that are lingering even in the midst of uh, the, the so-called growth of the dot-com bubble. Uh, and then I, I, I read the film, its narrative, and its digital animation aesthetics as a complex expression of all of those anxieties of that particular moment. So have a listen, uh, enjoy. If you have questions, uh, hit me up on Twitter. I'm always happy to, to, to answer questions or to, to think through this film and others with you. And with that, uh, here we go, part two. So, um, I do want to talk uh, about um, the way that sound comes to work in the digital age um, in, uh, in a moment, but I think it's important to finally wrap our heads directly around Thomas Ogden's work and his theory of autistic structures, or as he puts it, the autistic contiguous position or the autistic 
statistic contiguous problematic. Originally, I didn't assign Ogden for this course, but basically in preparing for my various lectures, um, and sometimes kind of spontaneously while recording them, I just found it increasingly impossible to avoid Ogden because really unbeknownst to him, because he's writing about, you know, psychoanalysis and, and, and the clinic and working with patients, his theory of autistic contiguous uh, positionality actually gives us a really rich and illuminating language for understanding the blockbusters hypernewtonian phenomenology and not just as a collective sensory logic, right? Um, but more specifically as a collective sensory and social symptom, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an ailment. Um, and, you know, I've been trying to describe it in that way, you know, it, it, it once sort of responds to the neoliberal era and its precarity, um, but is itself, a, you know, a kind of a sickly result of it. And as a sickly result of it, um, it also perpetuates it and its own kind of self-soothing feelings are part of the part of its toxicity, essentially. So I've been trying to explain that in a variety of ways. Um, but uh, Ogden really just really, I think, makes it clear, even though he's not talking about the blockbuster, he's not talking about art per se, uh, he's, he's really talking about individuals. So I ask you to take a look at the most important chapter from Ogden's book, The Primitive Edge of Experience. Ogden here is engaging in a long tradition of psychoanalytic theory. Psychoanalysis was first developed by Sigmund Freud, as some of you know, at the turn of the 20th century. It was later developed in multiple and sometimes conflicting ways by later analysts and theorists. Ogden comes out of the so-called object relations school of psychoanalysis that was largely inaugurated by an analyst named Melanie Klein. As its name suggests, the object relations school is primarily interested in how humans come to develop as psychosocial beings in relations to others uh, or to objects, um, be it mothers or parents or caretakers or society in general or the things that surround the infant and, and developing baby. Um, object relations theory recognizes all kinds of contradictions and ambivalences that can arise in this process. It also diagnoses the symptoms arise when development undergoes problems or failures. And those problems or failures of development can have multiple sources, including just endogenous, you know, kind of, you know, however you want to put them, you know, uh, genetic or behavioral disorders. But very often they're interested in the relationality that produces it. And essentially they're interested in interdependence and using different language, not always the language of care, but um, sometimes synonyms for care, but basically like when caring isn't really working, <laughs> when, when there's carelessness, when there's not enough support, um, these, these problems arise. Um, that's not all that object relations theory does, but it's one of the, the primary through lines. Now I will say object relation psychoanalysis, including Ogden, has its limits. It tends to be focused on individuality um, to a fault. Um, and, you know, it, it will acknowledge, of course, that individuality is always always socially constructed, but it, I would say that it it puts the, the central locus of causality um, between the child and the parent, or, you know, sometimes, uh, like, 
you know, of, in a kind of reductive patriarchal way, the, the mother and the, and the child. Um, but I, I nevertheless think it, ha it harbors lots of insights that uh, we can learn from, and especially when it comes to Ogden's work. So that's where Ogden's um, work comes out of, comes out of this tradition. And, and in fact, you'll notice that when he is working out his own view, he's really, he's really citing others. And he, in a certain sense, suggests that others have um, come up with a lot of these observations and insights. He's more just kind of synthesizing them and formulating a new, let's say, more systemic theorization of, of the phenomena and the problems um, that um, that others have witnessed, in, you know, in addition to him. So Ogden's contribution is to theorize a particular developmental challenge and, and problem that he sees emerging very early on in uh, a human's life. Prior to, and this is important, prior to many of the other problems and challenges that have been identified by previous psychoanalysts. And this problem, this challenge, he calls the autistic contiguous position. It's at once an initial developmental phase, the autistic contiguous phase, but it's also, he doesn't want to just call it a phase. He calls it a, he basically says it's a lifelong project. One never really actually like fully solves or escapes um, this challenge of the autistic contiguous position. And so you know, this is very typical of a psychoanalyst. You know, the, um, for Freud and all psychoanalysts, you don't, you know, you don't um, become perfect. You don't just clean up, you know, your symptoms and get rid of them, and you're you're suddenly you're just fine. You can understand better. You can improve your health. You can um, transform your psyche. Have different relationships to the world that are more healthy. Um, but it's a constant process, right? So that, that's what's going on here. So the question for Ogden is this, in the autistic contiguous position. How does the self, right, starting as an infant, come to experience themselves as singular, bounded, sensory surfaces? Or how does a, a self get to know itself at a sensorial level as something that is part of the world as a as an agent that is part of the world but also is differentiated from it um, so like other psychoanalysts he doesn't take any of these basic structures of psychosocial development for granted he doesn't explain them away by saying things are innate or hardwired um, lots of psychoanalysts will take evolution seriously and they might suggest that certain processes are um, I, I wouldn't, I don't see them saying the word hardwired, but, um, you know, that are, are, um, conditioned, right? That, that is essentially phylogeny, evolution, conditions, development, or ontogeny. But that doesn't mean that it does so just like, you know, like a perfect machine. Um, they recognize that every ontogeny, every developmental, uh, cycle, it needs to kind of construct, you know, not just a body, but a whole, a, a whole psychosocial and sensory um, sense of self and relationship to the world. And it's that kind of very basic sensory, sen not just perception of the world, but a sense of oneself as something distinct and that is a sensory surface, uh, a contiguous surface. Um, that's what, what Ogden is interested in. 
What interests him, as he puts it, are the pre-symbolic, so prior to language, right? We're talking about an infant that doesn't speak. Pre-symbolic connections between sensory impressions that come to constitute bounded surfaces. So the way he's thinking of this is, you know, you have all these sensory surfaces, mostly the skin, right? But, you know, the tongue and, you know, all, all kinds of uh, sensory surfaces. And they are, they come together and are kind of organized as a whole and, and give the, the infant a sense that, oh yeah, you know, I'm not just a part of mom's body anymore. I'm just a, an extension of mom's body and inside of her, I'm, I am a separate being um, that's certainly dependent on mom and parents and the world. Um, but I'm my own sense of self and that sense of self doesn't start with, you know, what Rene Descartes would say, I think therefore I am, right? Uh, or, you know, through language, it starts through a, a, a basic sense of um, sensory awareness and the difference between uh, a kind of inside and outside uh, of, of, of one's organism, essentially. Put another way, he asks, how, do, how does the individual infant come to experience themselves as a specifically contiguous and semi-enclosed sensory surface that differentiates inside from outside? Now, even though he appeals to the term autistic, Ogden clarifies that what he has in mind is a normative developmental process. This is why he adds the term contiguous to his theory. Um, it's as much about setting up a semi-enclosed sense of sensory selfhood as it is about being enmeshed within and dependent upon a larger world. This is how he writes about it, quote, I believe the word contiguous is particularly apt in further naming this organization since the experience of surfaces touching one another is a principal medium. I like that word medium. It's good for us doing media studies. The experience of surfaces touching one another is a principal medium through which connections are made and organization achieved in this physiological mode. The word contiguous thus provides the necessary antithesis to the connotations of isolation and disconnectedness carried by the word autistic. Right? So the autistic part on his reading of autism uh, is uh, the kind of, you know, the 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 individuating part of the process, the becoming a self, becoming a self that's separate from the other, separate from the world. The contiguous is the, the connection side of things. And it's about basically bringing those two senses into balance through the medium of um, surface, right? And surface uh, touching in some way or another. Now, I'm not gonna address it here, but I do wanna warn that the term autism uh, is a fraught one. It's been further theorized since the 80s when um, Ogden was first writing about this. It's been contested. It's become a big political issue. Um, it's been transformed. Uh, we have, you know, we have a whole new kind of understanding of autism uh, and, poli you know, scientific and political. Um, and I'm not here to adjudicate that. You know, you, there's plenty of resources that you can go find. Uh, I, but I also don't want to just, you know, throw out what Ogden is saying simply because this is, you know, a, a text from the past before any of that happened, right? Um, so uh, what I want to do is get us to understand what Ogden is doing, mostly just so we can think about um, media studies and the Hypernetonian blockbuster because I find it so useful, right? So the point here, as I've been stressing all semester, 
is not to weigh in on, you know, autism as a pathology or not a pathology or what is normal, what is not normal. Those are not my questions. And I recognize that those are, you know, those are loaded questions and, you know, I'm I'm here to be schooled and, um, you know, uh, join in the complexity, right? But what I want to do here is take this particular set of ideas because I just find them so descriptive and helpful for thinking about the media that we're studying. Okay, so for Ogden, if the people and in the environment responsible for the child or, uh, you know, the, the, the person is sufficiently uh, caring, securing, um, it will create, Ogden says, a robust and adaptable sensory surface for the individual, right? A sensory, what he'll call a sensory floor, right? And this, so he uses floor as, an, as a metaphor, right? As a kind of foundation, right? Um, and that's sort of what he's interested in having people achieve, right? And that's the problem. Like, can you create a solid, not solid, <laughs> a a um, adaptable and strong sensory floor, like a strong sense of self, but is, that is also dependent on the world at not, again, not at the level of thought or language that'll come later, but at the level of just sensory experience. Um, he writes about this quote, this primitive psychological organization under normal circumstances contributes to the barely perceptible background of sensory boundedness of all subsequent subjective states. So this is him saying, you know, we experience this sensory boundedness as, as in the background, as something, you know, like you're not thinking right now about the floor that you're standing on or your, your feet are resting on or, you know, um, that's below you right now. You just kind of take it for granted. I think something similar is going on here as well. Um, and he says, he sort of thinks that we, you know, don't attend to it precisely because it's so foundational. Now, Ogden will go on to stress that both the kind of spatial sense uh, of, the, of, of sensuous caretaking um, and the rhythm of this experience, right? The like kind of uh, tempo and pace on um, the texture of that rhythm um, must be minimally securing, right? And I mean, let me just state outright, like, you know, if you're an infant who is being held and then is dropped, right? Um, even if even if you don't get a concussion and brain damage from the fall, um, that sense of being let go um, can be traumatic. And it, if it happens or things like that happen, or, you know, even potentially less traumatic things, but, but in that in that spectrum if things like that happen um your your sense of your uh sensory awareness and safety um become more and more uh, threatened and less secure so what uh, ogden will say is this this sense and this rhythmic um securing a process typically occurs through what he what he basically names as these two different forms. The first one he calls autistic shapes. Autistic shapes are impressions, and again, it's temporal, rhythmic impressions that arise 
in the touching of surfaces and not just with hands with one's whole sensory apparatus and what Ogden will make sure to, to differentiate between is the object itself that might be that that is being touched or engaged in in what he calls an autistic shape um, versus the feeling that one has and that's what he's interested in the sense of the feeling and the rhythm of that feeling is the autistic shape um, so one of the great examples he gives is um, the feeling you have when you're kind of you know sitting in and maybe rocking a little bit back and forth in a chair like if you're sitting in a chair right now and you know pay attention to you know the the feeling that you have on the backs of your legs and your behind and the kind of differentiated pressures you're feeling there right it's not the autistic shape is for Ogden is not the chair itself um, what it is is it's that feeling and even the the temporality of that feeling as you're engaging and sensing the world for Ogden um, everyone at all ages is always caught up uh, with this process and it's often a often we um, kind of come back to repetitive autistic shapes as a way to feel our way through or the environment and self-soothe and make ourselves feel a little bit more comfortable um, so we have like a little bit of sensory anxiety or autistic contigu uh, contiguous anxiety he, he'll say so we do things like we tap our feet or we rock back and forth a little bit or we touch our faces uh, we clench, clench our jaws we rub the surfaces of our smartphones we um, we do all kinds of like rhythmic small little activities all the time um, to kind of reassure and reestablish our sensory floor, our sensory boundedness in its openness to the world. Um, then there's the second mode in which we do this. Um, autistic shapes tend to be relatively soft, right? They're relatively light or looser or, and more open and more dynamic. The, the second category is what he calls an autistic object. So this is an opposition to an autistic shape, or you could say it's a massive uh, intensification of the autistic shape. Um, an autistic object, he says, are hard angular sensory surfaces. Okay, so remember, this is not, um, this is not the thing itself, right? It's the feeling that it produces. So hard angular sensory surfaces. You know, one example that he'll give is, you know, patients that he's had that will bang their heads on, you know, on their pillows or on walls, you know, uh, or or chairs or other surfaces, and you know, repetitively, me mechanistically, and in order to feel the hardness of the edge of the chair or the side of the chair, um, and so he says these. Uh, angular sensory surfaces, they act as defenses in the face of anxiety or a sense of danger or a sense of unboundedness, a sense that the, that the sensory, one sensory surface is somehow not secure, not, not whole, um, um, etc. And he, he describes it as kind of forming, it helps to form a, a, a crust or an armor that protects the individual sensorium uh, with, with sharply defined senses of an edge, 
of 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 boundedness. So it's it's a kind of a feeling of becoming unbounded, and so then you you one um, kind of digs in and and turns something that might be an autistic shape into an autistic object, and really you know really um, maniacally drives toward something that feels like a secure edge. It's this second second category, the autistic object. Uh, that Ogden will primarily associate with the symptoms of the autistic contiguous position. Basically, the failures, the problems with establishing a strong sensory floor. He reports individually specific symptoms involving feelings and thoughts of sensory disintegration. He'll, I mean, you, you can read the whole chapter, the whole book for all kinds of examples. He cites patients who will talk about the fear of spiders coming out of every bodily orifice of theirs. Um, many patients will c complain of their insides leaking uncontrollably into their outsides. Uh, and there, there's so many different examples. Um, uh, you know, feelings of that one's gonna fall, right? Uh, uh, that, that's another common one as well. But often I think it's more inchoate, right? It's harder to, to, to give a figural expression to. It's just this general sense of insecurity about one's own sensory boundedness. So then in response to these threatening feelings of dissolution, the subject will pursue and essentially generate an intense self-soothing experience of autistic objects in pathological, rhythmic, really mechanistic patterns that feel like they are uh, a kind of absolute security. But of course, the truth is, is that they're not a security um, and that they're actually just symptoms of a lack of security. And no matter how much, uh, how much one pursues autistic objects, um, they're never gonna give you the security um, that you know, your sensory floor needs. And Ogden gives all kinds of examples involving both the body, but also the mind. So he, um, he talks about, you know, I've mentioned, you know, banging heads on or various body parts against hard surfaces, uh, the obsessive use of muscles, often in exercise, uh, wrapping oneself up tightly in clothes and blankets, obsessive um, uh, and often non-culminating masturbation is another example, uh, repetitive rumination on geometric patterns in one's head, or he says, and this is in the 80s, remember, or through computer programs. So. Um, uh, yeah, um, the, the connection between computer animation here and, uh, and psychoanalysis is, is, is interesting. It's kind of bubbling to the surface, but more on that later. Um, you know, another patient he talks about, it, it's about the sense of smell, a patient that never, never bathed and kind of cultivated a sharp and pungent odor that pervaded their bodies and the, and the space around them and their surroundings, uh, and other people, um, so he says these, sim these symptoms seek to harden and close off the sensory surface to secure it, but also close it off to threats and to unpredictability, to develop an external armor and a machine-like regularity. And this is, of course, where the autistic side comes in uh, for him, right? And... Um, one of the ways that Ogden will also talk about this is using a term um, that psychoanalysts, especially object relations theorists, like to use, holding environment. 
very often object relations theorists will talk about um, the the relationship between the mother and the child is a holding environment, a care a care environment, um, and then also the 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 psychoanalysis, the therapy itself, is another kind of other or a meta holding environment that kind of opens up the problems of the first holding environment. Um, and following other uh, uh, psychoanalysts, Ogden will say that when you have severe pathological symptoms with autistic objects, um, the holding environment that that creates that sense of bounded dynamic, you know, sensory surface really contracts. He says there there's there it's a situation with with less and less room less and less room to experience, to live, to also symbolize, right? To use language, to use imagination, and to interpret the world and to engage with the world because it's closing it's closing you off, right? It's, it's closing you off and it's closing you off at the level of your whole sensory awareness, but then it has cascading effects for the way you engage with language and with others and socially and um, etc. So it becomes a kind of protective mummification. And uh, you know what what Ogden wants to do is diagnose it, uh, see it as a you know a fundamental struggle for everyone, suggest that everybody's kind of caught up to uh, caught up with it in their own ways, but then there are more severe problems that can be addressed and can be addressed therapeutically. And he wants to, you know, classically, like any psychoanalyst would, um, make the therapeutic experience a kind of holding environment, not literally holding, um, but using what um, uh, psychoanalysts call the talking cure uh, to variously engage in, and, and explore and work through essentially why the person feels so insecure, articulate that in, that sensory insecurity, but then work through why that's the case and then provide a, you know, a, another kind of um, uh, listening and engaging social environment that allows those symptoms to hopefully lessen and, and give way and maybe give way to more, um, um, let's say, healthy autistic shapes, softer shapes rather than uh, autistic objects. Um, now, I do want to say a few things about this. So first, um, you know, I would want to think about Ogden not just as giving us some transhistorical theory of all humans at all times, but I want to think of himself as caught up uh, at a particular moment, right? I mean, he's he's writing during the Reagan 80s and the rise of, of neoliberalism. Um, and uh, I think that in certain ways, um, you could say that his own tendency to not not really privilege big macro structures might be uh, I mean certainly that's an inheritance of the kind of big L liberal um, foundations of psychoanalysis in, in its individualism but it's also potentially um, you know symptomatic of neoliberalism as well even though he's trying to bring a kind of therapeutic care and understanding uh, to these questions um, so I would want to link, you know, money and macro political economy to these to these questions, to these problems that he's he's um, opening up, and to suggest that they're both part of the cause and 
and need to be part of the cure, right? That um, you need money, right? You need money to do psychoanalysis. You also need money. Um, you need to understand how money works if you're going to think about how systemic uh, carelessness uh, goes on. It's because we don't want to be blaming individual parents or mothers. Um, not to say that they don't individuals don't have responsibility, but you know, very often, you know, when when infants and children feel insecure, let's say because they starve or they they're homeless, um, this is not this is not just a, a problem of hechiety. It's not just a problem of them all by themselves, right? It's it's a function of systemic un and underemployment. It's a it's a function of not having enough for affordable housing, right? And those money, big macro money questions are part of the care problem here and part of the sensory floor problem. And he's just not going there, essentially. Now, I, I think he's the kind of thinker that if, you know, if I said this to him, he'd probably say, you know, the MMT part would weird him out, but I think he would probably say like, well, yeah, of course, you know, I mean, I, I don't think he's some some um, wild-eyed neoliberal, but but it does seem like his kind of focus on the hechivi of the individual without that broader macro and money uh, question has its limits, and we have to think about that in relationship to contextually to, to neoliberalism. And then at the same time, I do think in a sense, he's he's diagnosing neoliberalism. He's diagnosing the way so much of neoliberal precarity is experienced. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think this is like wholly new. I think, in fact, as I write in my book, there's a whole kind of... Um, sensory and linguistic and imaginative what I call spectacle of disintegration that surrounds the the essentially turn to Hachiti philosophy theology and metaphysics in the early modernity and you know probably the most famous um, expression of this uh, nowadays is when Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto said that all that is because of the capitalist mode of production all that is solid melts into air uh, all that is holy is profaned. And we have this just sense of the world disintegrating and all that was, you know, sacred, you know, falling apart. And it's, you know, it's evocative and, and all that. It's, again, it's very well known. Um, and it's often called upon to make sense of, you know, what, what our political economic system um, uh, does um, in, 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 in its destructive aspects. But my critique in the book is to say this is actually what happens when you start imagining the whole world turning on in in just a bunch of individuals or individual associations or hechiity. It, it it's basically like well they they're persisting as hechiity and then but they're always threatened by disintegration, and these spectacles of disintegration I think kind of come back with a vengeance during the neoliberal period and and I think you know predictably so um, and. Um, what Ogden does is diagnoses how that feels and um, what the logic is and what that logic is not at the level of, you know, con psychic conscious worry or language, but at the level of phenomenology in a sense. Um, and, you know, you might say that this is what it feels like to live in a world where, where we feel feel that money is a private, finite, decentered, and ultimately alienable and alienating uh, technology that organizes the world. Um, he's giving us a phenomenology of the neoliberal money form with all of its pathologies. 
But then, of course, further we can say that he's giving us a phenomenology of the, the, the hypernewtonian blockbuster, and he gives us all kinds of great language to talk about the complexity of, of that phenomenology and how it works and how it works in relationship to neoliberalism and to money and all of these larger problems. So, you know, as we've explored in Spielberg and Lucas's films, in addition to the 80s hard body action films, you know, we see a variety of what we could call autistic contiguous symptoms. Um, and right now that we've explored Ogden's work in greater detail, we can appeal to the language of both, you know, soft autistic shapes, uh, especially like in, in Spielberg, right? Um, and hard autistic objects. And we can describe all kinds of um, forms and rhythms in hypernewtonian aesthetics. And all of these work to repress abstraction, or in Ogden's language, they, they, they close off room, right? And openness to the larger whole. Um, and, and we need abstraction to be able to, to you know, really be uh, of the world in, a, in, a, in a, an expansive sense, in a sense that can see the problems and address the problem. So, you know, let's talk about some examples that we've considered in the past. Um, you know, I, I just mentioned, you know, the, the kind of Spielberg uh, touch aesthetic um, explored in that video essay, the Spielberg touch screen. Um, you could say that's a kind of, um, you know, you can manipulate Ogden's language here. You can say there's a kind of excessive preoccupation with autistic shapes such that they become pathological. There, there's a lot of softness in them. Uh, but then, of course, he has his uh, hard, uh, hard uh, autistic objects like his sublime lights um, and, you know, you could say, you know, Jaws the Shark or, you know, the various, you know, spaceships and, and things like that in, in his films. We could think about the contracted enclosures in um, Lucas's mise-en-scene, right, um, that work in a slightly different way than the, the uh, Spielberg aesthetic does. Then there's the hard body action film, uh, which we explored through Robocop, uh, where um, you just have these explosive impacts and smashing through boundaries, right? And I think this is where really Ogden's language, I think, can really help us understand what's going on. Uh, and certainly was helpful for me to even come up with my argumentation in the first place. So remember, I've, I've made the case that that there's something that's strangely reassuring, like 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 being a swaddled baby, right? Like the, the blockbuster is swaddling our senses like a baby and rocking us like a baby in these moments of intense, intense explosion or impact. And what's crazy here, right, is that as, as there's this big boom or big explosion or big, you know, giving way of, of a hard surface, um, and you know that let's say the object like the door or the window or the dam whatever it is is seen to just crack open and no longer hold and support uh, what it was holding and supporting at the very same time there there is this excess feeling of support right and what ogden what ogden's language helps us with here is that distinction between the the um the object itself and the autistic object, 
the autistic object isn't the dam, it isn't the window, it isn't any of those things, right? Um, it's the feeling we have when we encounter them as in a sensuous experience. So, just like, you know, the, the suffering person who's banging their head against, you know, a wall or something, um, uh, trying to get some hard edge, some hard sense of, of sensory selfhood and sensory floor, um, when we are being immersively wrapped up in a world of smashing doors and windows and all that stuff, it's creating these autistic, autistic surfaces, autistic objects that give us this kind of momentary assurance at the very same time as the world itself seems to be disintegrating, seems to be falling apart. And I think that's super helpful and kind of opens up um, some of the, the paradoxical feelings that we're, we've been exploring about the blockbuster. It helps us see how something that could be, can be so jarring and so violent and so disintegrating at the level of, you know, representation and, um, you know, bodily experience can also at the same time be strangely self-soothing, but as a collective self-soothing. So turning to the digital era, this kind of language can also prove helpful in making sense of character animation and digital environment creation, right? And when we talk about a, a character needing to be rigged, right, physically as some kind of puppetry or even digital light as, you know, needing to go through a process of subsurface scattering that goes in and out of, you know, skin and other elements in the mise-en-scene, it all seems to work together to create these these impressions of autistic objects, these impressions that, that have a kind of hard definition to them, even if they're caught up in disintegrating um, movements um, and immersive, um, uh, you know, destructive experiences. So from here, I think we're well poised to, to add what Prince says about character and, and um, character animation in the digital age to Mark Karen's essay about digital sound, digital surround sound. His essay is titled, as I've mentioned, Narration in the Cinema of Digital Sound. So what this essay is, is it's about narrative aesthetics, right? Narrative storytelling aesthetics and how they change and continue to change in the digital era in relationship to the rise of digital surround sound technology. So this essay is not about Pixar or Toy Story in particular, even though there are references to Pixar here. But I had you read this essay um, mostly just to get us, get us um, oriented toward what sound is going to be like as we move from the analog mechanical to the more thoroughly digital era of the blockbuster. So the essay begins by clarifying the differences between the Dolby revolution that accompanied the rise of the Lucas Spielberg blockbuster that we've studied in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and the digital surround sound technologies that overtook Hollywood production and exhibition in the early mid 1990s. So prior to the 70s, he says, while there had been stereo experiments and multi-channel um, film releases, the history of cinema had largely been constricted to monophonic sound, 
largely because exhibition spaces were not equipped to do anything else. So if you had filmmakers working in in actual stereo two-channel, minimally two-channel sound, you couldn't really hear two-channel sound in most places. It would only be available in certain certain uh, locations, and so most of the time, you know, uh, you'd have to mix two different versions, and most most people in the world would just see the monophonic um, version. And in monophonic sound, you know, sound is not only just one; it's all just one channel um, uh, being played in all the speakers, but it's also very front-loaded. It's all kind of connected to the to the screen. I mean, not literally connected, but it's sort of coming from. Uh, and, and emanating from, you know, the area around the screen. Karen writes, the adoption of Dolby stereo as the theatrical standard in the late 1970s and early 80s changed the rules. For the first time, filmmakers could rely on most audiences hearing whatever stereo effects they used. That's the end of the quote. By many accounts, this new Dolby era, he says, brought all kinds of new freedoms for new formal choices. It changed the way films were shot and edited, it opened up a more fragmentary and fast-paced visual track, and it let sound design do a lot more um, sensory work um, than it had previously. Um, it also, you know, changed audience expectations, right? And, you know, we, we probably have a sense of this after studying Jaws and studying Star Wars and, and Robocop, right? But for this author, Karens, he wants to say that the so-called Dolby Revolution is pr pretty overblown. That for him, the biggest break in sound cinema history, um, for him, is not actually the transition between the pre-Dolby and the post-Dolby era, but rather the transition from the Dolby stereo era to the digital surround sound era. While others before him largely characterized digital surround sound, or DSS as it's known for short, as a refinement, a mere intensification of Dolby stereo, Karens calls our attention to the profound differences between these audiovisual regimes. To do so, he breaks down specific differences in technological design and capability, as well as the aesthetic values and experiences these regimes make possible. I'm going to read from Karen's at length from around page 43, if you want to you know, pick up your text and, and read along, in order to basically sketch out and you know make clear what these differences are. So he says, consider for instance the channel arrangement of these two systems. Dolby Stereo ostensibly includes four separate audio channels, three across the width of the screen and one for the surround speakers, and it's funny he puts quotations as if they're not really surround speakers, out in the space of the theater. DSS systems, meanwhile, have 5.1 or more channels, with the simplest and most common configuration employing three front channels, two left and right sound channels, and a low frequency effects LFE channel representing point one. That low frequency effects, that's the bass channel, right? That's what rumbles your, your butt um, uh, in digital surround sound um, to, you know, around impacts and things like that. In other words, he says, the basic DSS channel setup looks much like that of Dolby Stereo, albeit with the rear channel split into two and the LFE channel added. In reality, though, 
the DSS configuration includes one more crucial technical advance over Dolby Stereo. Where the older system uses a so-called matrixing system to achieve its multi-channel effects, DSS systems keep all 5.1 channels discrete. Now, so basically saying like, the mixing system is, is kind of sloppy and, and kind of bleeds across different channels in Dolby, whereas in DSS, you can, you can be very precise and discreet, and you can put sounds wherever you want to at any time. So I'm gonna to continue to read. Quote, this difference between matrixed and discrete soundtracks is one of the most significant advantages of DSS over Dolby Stereo. Um, just as an aside, as we'll see, you know, he's a, another one of these like progressivists who thinks that this is the, the best thing ever. And, you know, he, he just praises it um, without any kind of historically situated social critique or anything like that. Um, but anyway, so he's going to say it's an advance, you know, it's an advantage. Back to the uh, quote, in, an, in a matrixed soundtrack, the information in each channel is inextricably linked to that in the others. In the specific case of Dolby Stereo, the matrixing used means that certain types of mixes are simply impossible. Ah, so it's limited, right? For example, a filmmaker working in Dolby Stereo cannot place a sound in the front left and right channels without placing it in the center as well. So it's muddy, right? You can't precisely place it. It has to be kind of like in a mushy way, kind of generally over there, but it can't be precisely in a particular spot. Uh, moreover, and crucially for our discussion here, the Dolby Stereo mix is heavily screen-centric, right? So kind of like what, what it replaced, the monophonic sound of the classical era. It's still screen-centric, emphasizing the front-center channel and placing strict limitations on, on use of the single surround channel. No major effects or dialogue can be placed in this channel, and the sounds that are placed there are restricted to a narrow frequency range covering only about 60% of the human range of hearing. The discrete encoding processes used by DSS systems, on the other hand, allow any sound to be mixed in any of the five full range channels. The LFE channel, as its name implies, is reserved exclusively for low frequency sounds, regardless of whether or not the sound appears in any other channels. I'm gonna to continue to read. The ability of DSS technology to put any sound anywhere combined with its use of stereo surrounds marks a key difference between Dolby Stereo and DSS. Where the former is designed to be screen-centric, the latter allows film soundtracks to spread out into theaters as their makers see it. That makes me think of uh, Obi-Wan, stretch out with your feelings. Or put another way, Dolby Stereo by design holds to the codes of the monophonic cinema focusing sound on the front center channel, while DSS is engineered to model a, quote, true 360-degree multi-channel environment, a multi-channel environment, where the focal point of the soundscape can be anywhere in the theater. From this perspective, Dolby Stereo is actually more like monophonic sound than it is like D its DSS successor. Uh, I find really funny, uh, he puts these scare quotes, the author, around things like, words like complete or true. Um, he might put them around real too, I can't remember. And it's funny because on the one, he, he, on the one hand, he doesn't want to appear sort of naive, like there's something absolutely true or absolutely complete. And yet his own praise for this equipment um, 
uh, betrays all of that. It's almost like he's protesting too much, or like the you know the the scare quotes actually really are. He's trying to signal that he is skeptical, at least minimally skeptical, when he's absolutely not. I'm going to continue uh, to read um, to close out this section. The shift from a screen-centric design to a full 360-degree sound field was not only uh, not the only change DSS offered audiences accustomed to Dolby Stereo. Other technical differences between the two systems for instance, gave DSS a wider dynamic range, more low frequency power thanks to the LFE channel, and a better ability to smoothly move sounds around the space of the theater than its predecessor. Nevertheless, it is principally the shift from screen-centric sound to more, quote, complete sound that will be explored here, as it is this change that has had the most obvious effects on cinematic storytelling. If, as this author Sergei argues, Dolby Stereo sparked a change in filmmaking significant enough to mark the onset of the so-called, or the, the quote, Dolby era, which again he wants to distance himself from as being somehow revolutionary, then DSS has pushed us into yet another period, the era of the digital sound cinema, right, which then allows for all of these new narrative, um, narrative techniques, right? Um, so what emerges here is, you know, a pretty convincing case for a break between the Dolby and the DSS eras and, you know, probably a more profound break than we saw moving into the Dolby era. Even if we can admit that the Dolby era did um, definitely uh, change the direction of uh, sound design and narrative, um, narrative aesthetics. So... What DSS basically does is it tries to create a totalizing, immersive sound environment. Right? It does this with its discrete channels that can move and pan sound across the viewing space behind, you know, seemingly above or below uh, in just really precise and highly articulated ways. The low frequency bass channel it will not only add low-end frequencies to you know impacts and booms and and you know friction and things like that, but uh, as Karen's also points out, it can also bring out a, a sense of inner power or force in physical objects or or sort of you know force fields, right? Um, whether they're kind of mystical or or very secular and grounded. Now, not only does Karen's not really historicize this in terms of uh, social values and how aesthetic values express uh, shifting social values and social problems and crises, um, but he also doesn't even question right the the fact that the, that Hollywood in the digital turn, the digital auditory turn, wants to create uh, the sound experience as a uh, enveloping environment that feels not like an abstract space, but as a 360-degree volumetric enclosure. Um, that is a that is a I would say a riddle of the era, um, not to just be taken for granted. It didn't have to go that way. It hadn't been that way previously. We can say that the Dolby transformation pushed in that direction already, so those values were already at play. Um, but even that, those values came from somewhere. So, you know, we tend to today think of you know, immersion as just, well, of course, that's naturally what, uh, you know, what 
our audiovisual technology should be doing. But that, but that, there's nothing natural about that. Those are all social historical um, decisions, right? So, I, I think we need to think about you know, why. Why is it? that we created a cinematic experience. And you know, this extends to video game experience as well, but we're really talking about cinema here. That is trying to kind of physically, you could say hold and release us or, you know, uh, rumble us or, you know, but in these, in this very uh, material volumetric way of envelopment, right? And I think, with Ogden's theory of autistic shapes and autistic objects in view, Karen's analysis um, can can actually give us a, a social historical theory. Uh, and we can say that the digital surround sound sonic field, right, um, is the sonic expression of the this hyper-Newtonian autistic contiguous symptomology. Uh, and, you know, I'll say that um, Karen's gives us great, a lot of great examples, and he's really, ast- I mean, he's an astute listener. Um, you know, it, it's very hard to do this. You have to go to the, the theater to, to do these analyses, and you have to go again and again and again, you know, and you can't just rewind, right? Um, uh, and so he gives us a lot of examples. And I, I think probably the, the one example that is the most telling in light of our analysis and argumentation and probably best for thinking about Pixar is his analysis of the opening of uh, Finding Nemo, right? A, a slightly later Pixar film. So as Karens describes it, he says, Finding Nemo first starts out by creating an open and busy underwater surround sound environment. Then it shifts us to an enclosed and protected cave, right? If you're not hearing Ogden here, you know, you haven't been paying attention. And um, that cave is associated with parenthood and, and eggs, right? And vulnerable eggs, right? So it's very much about care, right? And development. And then finally, um, what, what the soundscape will do is it'll, it'll remove suddenly all of the previous sensory input, the surround, the surround sound experience, and that sense of security will just evacuate. And for Karen's, he's, he's trying to point out that, well, this is the genius of the new mode of narrative storytelling where you don't need to do it all through vision. You can often do it through sound. So there is a scary barracuda that comes to the reef and makes everybody be quiet and hide, right? And it's introduced through sound, he says, not through seeing it. Or, or, or through, let's say, uh, eyeline matches, where we see a, a fish looking off screen scared and then we cut to the barracuda. No, we sense its presence by the absence of this, of this autistic contiguous envelope, essentially, of sound. Right? So this is the way he describes it um, in his actual text. He says, the underwater environments the film creates include all kinds of sounds from background dialogue to animal noises to waves. The ambient sound's biggest component, though, is a bubbly sound that pervades the underwater world. The bubbles in each of the four channels are slightly different. This, along with the decision to avoid employing any sort of reverb in the open water scene, suggesting an endless space where sound never hits reflective surfaces, subtly hints to us that the diegetic world here is a wide open space with different things in every direction. Then the oral environment, all bubbles so far, explodes with activity. All these sounds are panned around the five channel sonic space to create the feeling of a complete world surrounding us. 
Okay, so then he moves on to say that Nemo's parents swim to a smaller cave housing their eggs and the sound ambiance noticeably shifts to convey, quote, the enclosed feeling of the cave. A new mixing strategy suggests a, quote, small enclosed space. The ambiance and effects also serve to make us feel enveloped and protected as the happy voices of the eggs and to our primal selves, perhaps our parents surround us. Okay, that's all a quote, right? I mean, it could be right out of Ogden, right? Our, our parents surrounding us, making us feel secure, and this small envelopment is in, in turn encased in a much larger envelopment uh, of, of sound space. Then the Barracuda's presence is signaled through what I would call a kind of sonic indexicality except instead of a positive index, it's a negative one, right? It's the sudden absence of this sonic envelopment of a parental care, you could say, or communal care. So here's Karen. He says something is different. The bubbling has stopped, suggesting that all the reef's activity has suddenly ceased. The complete lack of ambient sound is deeply disturbing. We have already come to expect a constant barrage of subtle sounds from all sides. You know, we could call these autistic shapes. And their sudden absence signals, right, like an index, signals something is wrong. That's the end of the quote. So here we have an autistically structured neoliberal soundscape. It's counteracting the visual fragmentation in the image track. Um, it cradles the sensorium in an enveloping immersive sound field. As in Star Wars's construction of mise-en-scene, sonic space is polarized between a sense of a wide open, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of exterior and a contracted parental uh, holding enclosure. And then the evacuation of the sound reintroduces this autistic contiguous anxiety, um, um, you know, that we're feeling already from the visual track, but, but that's being supplemented by the sound. But, you know, when, it, when it's taken away, it's like we're feeling, the, we're feeling the need for that envelopment. We're feeling the need for that security um, in, in a way that we could probably call, uh, uh, after Ogden, an autistic object, right? Okay, so with all this in mind, I think we can finally turn to Toy Story. Uh, this film, as I think I've mentioned, is the first full-length commercial feature cartoon. Uh, and it, of course, has inaugurated 20-plus years of, of digital animation in its wake. The story and the look of the film appear, at first, like a simple nostalgic return to a mid-century white middle-class boyhood uh, centered around uh, the boy Andy and his family. Um, the plot conceit that children's toys walk, talk, and have lives of their own when people are not looking um, definitely invokes previous models, uh, specifically the early 20th century popular children's book series Raggedy Ann and Andy, uh, as well as later children's books like uh, the 1968 book Corduroy Bear. Plus, Toy Story teams with references to sci-fi and western b-movies and classic toys from mattel and play school right so this is pretty thoroughly nostalgic and in a sense 
uh, you could say that Toy Story is a nod to the kind of subjective historical experience that we associate, you know, popularly with Lucas and Spielberg, right, that gave rise to the blockbuster in the first place, but also, you know, Alvy Ray Smith and Ed Catmull with their own, you know, white middle class boyhoods um, um, and their love of, you know, action and animation and things like this. And I will say that the like in the Lucas and Spielberg blockbuster, which we can say this is really just an extension of, Toy Story is far from simple and its nostalgia is far from simple. That doesn't mean it, it doesn't have problems and it doesn't need to be critiqued, but it, it does mean it's not simple. When it comes down to it, Toy Story, its plot and its look are emphatically and sophisticatedly neoliberal. The tone and the address of the film is both earnest, but also driven by all kinds of reflexive bits and jokes that are aimed at uh, very knowing adults. And the story itself is based on uh, a bunch of very nervous toys. On the one hand, they're anxious because their fates are tied to the whims of a developing boy. Uh, and this plot will continue in the later um, um, sequels of Toy Story, where his Andy's development becomes um, even more anxiety-provoking in that kind of longi longitudinal sense, we could say. On the other hand, they're anxious because they, these toys, are acutely aware that their whole existence is predicated upon a ephemeral and uncertain and precarious uh, economy. Uh, which is basically the much-touted globalized commodity uh, production culture of the 1990s um, that um, was driven by, you know, neoliberal policies, free trade policies, uh, and, you know, digital networking technologies um, um, very much coming out of Silicon Valley. Um, and other places, you know, they know <laughs> that they are global commodities. They know they are made in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong and that they end up in all sorts of places like in um, American children's homes. They know that, um, you know, the companies that they were made by, uh, as one joke indicates, uh, are you know now mere subsidy sub subsidiaries that have been uh, gobbled up by larger corporations and corporate buyouts, right? All of these are you know major national and international um, uh, effects of uh, of neoliberalization, right? And they are they are overtly talking about this. You know these are these are the references. These are the jokes. This is the this is the the social and historical and economic and political horizon that um, these toys um, see themselves and acknowledge themselves as being a part of. Um, and they're also figured to be kind of like precarious global workers. Um, you know, fighting for positions that are limited. From this perspective, Andy reads almost kind of like an employer or like analog analogously to an employer, not that he is literally an employer, who gives these toys a livelihood, right? A purpose, uh, a home, right? Um, and the kind of charming but nervous gift-giving sequences that bookend the film, you know, they're light, they're funny, um, but in the context of 1990s neoliberal globalization, 
they suggest really unsettling feelings about the threat of being fired or being displaced or replaced by someone younger or you know um, outmoded outmoded by a by a machine or by automation by the kinds of um, automated tools and algorithms that are coming out of Silicon Valley. What is extremely troubling here is less the fact that such anxieties are explored on screen. It's of the moment, and it would make sense that neoliberal globalization um, would be resonating here, right? The film is trying to make sense of them. The problem here, of course, is that um, at the level of dialogue and plot, um, these facts are just kind of naturalized as inevitable, right? Um, and the, the problems of the world are entirely structured by these you know, inevitable corporate buyouts and takeovers, inevitable global supply chains, um, etc. They are naturalized. So in addition to never questioning that the world could be otherwise, the film actually goes out of its way to naturalize the precarity of neoliberal globalization and it does so by um, linking these contingent historical anxieties to Andy's seemingly natural developmental um, uh, milestones like birthdays and things right and and this then is connected to his apparently sort of just inevitable, um, you could say, consumer choices, right? Uh, whether he buys these things directly or he's given these 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 objects, uh, these characters, right, as gifts, right? So you've got the naturalized world of this precarious commodity culture and work worker, you know, situation, and you've got Andy's natural cyclical development. And it all kind of hinges upon consumer choice. Um, these are all thoroughly neoliberal, thoroughly kind of market-based ideologies. And of course, just at the level of plot and dialogue and character, there's a, no acknowledgement that you know all of this is structured by an abstract uh, money system uh, by nation states and, and, and law and could be organized otherwise uh, by engaging abstractly in that process. So, in this way, the plot implicitly envisions political economy as essentially like a big, massive private world market that revolves around individual preferences, right, that are treated as indices in a kind of big, finite physics. If money appears in Toy Story, uh, I would say that mostly it's indirectly through this implied global marketplace, through the, often these nervous jokes. That said, <laughs> Interestingly enough, money does appear directly on screen almost immediately in the opening sequence of the film. And, and it's interesting that the tone is, again, light and fun, but money is introduced when Andy at first plays out a bank robbery scene with the toys. This not only associates money, again, playfully, don't get me wrong, with theft and loss, but also connects it to Mr. Potato Head's entire plastic body falling to pieces, right? To a spectacle of disintegration. So um, I, I think we can't just take that as being just somehow like irrelevant, that the very, you know, Pixar is, is introducing, is inaugurating the digital feature length Hollywood cartoon and the whole era um, 
with uh, a moment of money loss and and physical disintegration, right? And that should make us think of the critiques we're developing in our course and and Ogden's whole language of uh, you know the the dissolution of the sensory floor. A further significant connection here is the fact that the vision of money in this um, is also, I think, kind of linked to what we typically think of as being postmodern genre combinations. So we think of the, the modernity, especially modernity, you know, in classical Hollywood cinema, that genres kind of um, kept to themselves. You know, you had westerns, you had sci-fi, you had historical epics, uh, you know, romantic comedies, but you didn't smash them together very often, right? And then that becomes a very a very common practice in the postmodern period, the neoliberal period, certainly Star Wars, you know, a lot of the films we've been talking about do that already, right? Here, what's interesting is that by the end of the robbery, um, again, these are all fun and they're jokes, but by the end of the robbery, Andy is turning this Western bank robbery scenario with this Western genre in mind. Um, he's turning it into, uh, or introducing, we could say, sci-fi elements, right, with futuristic lasers, right, and then an ancient dinosaur right, coming on, onto the scene and sort of doing, like, sci-fi of, like, the future and the past with, with the Western, right? And it's sort of interesting to think then about if money in this neoliberal globalized uh, moment is associated with a kind of creative dissolution of lives and boundaries and livelihoods and physical bodies, um, that this sort of goes hand in hand with the creative dissolution of boundaries between aesthetic rules and, and codes like popular genres. Meanwhile, Toy Story is extremely self-conscious and self-reflexive in presenting itself as a hyper-Newtonian blockbuster. You know, there's references all over the place to Star Wars, for example. For instance, Buzz Lightyear's whole story that he gets from the toy manufacturer that of course turns out not to be true uh, is just sort of a, a loose twist on the um, the character arc of R2-D2 in Star Wars, right? R2-D2 has a, a message that um, uh, gives information uh, about the weakness of a, a large um intergalactic uh, weapon and then it's go that weapon is owned by the empire and the empire is going to use it to destroy everything right and that's essentially the same thing except it's um you know it's it's not called the empire it's you know it's it's zerg right it's just, but it's just a slight twist on it but the film's self-reflexivity is not just relegated to knowing winks and nods uh to you know the church of Star Wars or the, you know, the liturgy of the blockbuster, as we've put it before. It is baked into its very aesthetic construction from the very beginning. And, you know, a close analysis of the opening sequence really, I, I think, will bring that to bear. So at first we see flat, white, two-dimensional clouds set against an equally flat blue backdrop suggesting you know relative depthlessness right there's we don't really feel kind of space between the clouds and the blue backdrop um and there's a kind of just ambiguous sense of scale and you know this takes place in an instant 
But, you know, we, we get the feeling of traditional animation um, with that, you know, that ambiguity and that depthlessness, you could say, the, the kind of abstractness of two, 2D um, or so-called 2D uh, animation. At the same time as we adjust our senses to this imagery, we sense that the, the camera, the viewpoint, is actually moving backwards along the z-axis in volumetric space. This suggests a quasi-diegetic camera, the quasi-diegetic camera of the blockbuster, and it's not only pulling away from these traditional 2D forms, but also it is materially incorporating these 2D forms into an apparently much bigger volumetric expanse. Only a second later, a comparatively large cardboard box made up by a child uh, and written on to look like a saloon arises into view from below. The box is made to appear as a clearly defined volumetric object which is in stark contrast to the sky and the clouds that uh, were revealed earlier as 2D and now clearly appear to be merely wallpaper, right? So 2D on a surface that is a wall in a larger volumetric um, multifaceted embodied space. Our view is still, you know, close and fragmentary and we're not really given a secure establishing shot very much like the post-continuity or what Bordeaux will call intensified continuity visual aesthetics of uh, the Hollywood blockbuster. But using fragmentary visual evidence uh, and a sense of indexicality, we're starting to, again, within like less than two seconds, starting to get a distinct sense not only of um, materiality and, and volume, but also scale and scale, uh, relative scale between all forms in this constructed space. And again, this once again, retroactively sort of reframes for us those 2D scalarly ambiguous clouds and, um, and, and blue background that we start with. Um, and, you know, with that kind of uh, uh, as a figure for the older style of animation we're literally moving back and away from that older style here. And it's very self-reflexive. Notably, the baseboards and the door are dinged. They're weathered. They are, as Lucas would say about his own aesthetics of the future, they are used, right? And with this, Toy Story induces indices, right, indexes, basically, indices of a longer historical time that pivots primarily on materia materiality and its deterioration, right? So in a certain way, we could say this is a spectacle of material disintegration, but as a kind of long-term uh, deterioration and, and, and decay, right? Um, so they make sure to work in those physical uh, blemishes into the space to make us feel a sense of lived material time. The camera pans left, and then it kind of pans into a sideways tracking shot because the camera's been moving backwards and we're feeling kind of that quasi-diegetic immersive um, um, viewpoint. And then when we pan left, the camera continues to move and we, we, we move in a kind of side track shot. And we start to uh, then see more and more a whole town 
of cardboard buildings, basically revealing like an old Western town, but, you know, put together by a, a small child. Um, and at the same time, we start to see an array of extremely warm and precisely delineated patterns of what's either early morning or late after afternoon light that's pouring uh, into the scene and um, reflecting on an already very shiny hardwood floor. This is broken up by cross-hatching, which itself is another index. It's indicative of off-scene window panes. And then this light is really, you know, it's so richly material, it's, it's, it's meant to, to feel like it's physically interacting with the environment in a, in a contingent way. So in this sense, you have a contracted scale of historical time. You've got the, the weathered baseboards and the dings that's like, you know, suggesting years, maybe decades. Um, and then you've got the kind of 24 hour temporal cycle um, of, of the sun, right? And the sun, coming through the window at a very particular time in the day when the light is so warm and so rich and is going to create all these you know, peculiar shadows um, from the shape of the window itself. Again, so deeply materialist uh, for an abstract digital animation. And all of this is established within like two or three seconds. And for me, this is Pixar telling the world that this is not going to be like your old cartoons. It's not even going to be like the hyper-Newtonian um, or, or nearly hyper-Newtonian Disney Renaissance cartoons. The new, the new Pixar, Toy Story, you know, 3D digital animation cartoons are going to be so much more volumetric, so much more physicalist. A beat later, an off-screen Andy, who we haven't met yet, we're meeting for the first time, plunges his hand holding an armed Mr. Potato Head into the center of the screen, and he's play-acting a Western stick-up, right? A whole stick-up of, of a bank. This is the, the money robbery that we were talking about earlier. This gesture may just seem fun and insignificant, and it's just, you know, it's just a kid playing, but if you consider this moment in light of animation history, we can actually read it as Pixar's very Pixar-esque interpretation of one of the key and longest running tropes in animation history. The trope is called the hand of the animator. It appears uh, in the very first animated films. And um, it, it often features either a live action or a drawn representation of an animator's hand holding a pen or brush or writing instrument or painting instrument of some kind. And in a very self-reflexive move, it's a gesture um, you know, by the animator or an image of the animator saying, you know, look, look what I'm doing to bring this you know, this static piece of paper or whatever it is, um, it might be claymation, right? Look what I'm doing. I'm manipulating this medium to bring it to life, right? And it's at once a kind of revelation of the, the apparatus and the, the techniques and the technology. And it's at once a kind of gesture of magic, like voila, look what I can do um, with my hands in this magical machine um, that can't actually ultimately be, you know, fully explained because, um, moving images are magic and animation is magic. Uh, so here is the digital Andy with his digital hand made of ones and zeros, total abstractions, 
uh, lending his hand, so to speak, to this trope, right? That's been done a number of times. But of course, there are crucial differences in the way this trope is taken up. Not only is the entire scene volumetric and Newtonian, hyper-Newtonian, but Andy, the animator in this case, is conspicuously depicted as a kind of puppeteer, right? He's not just a kid playing with toys. He is that, but he's also, he's also a puppeteer and he's using his toys like puppets. He's physically manipulating them and he's physically manipulating one of the, the ensemble cast leads, Mr. Potato Head. So with this, I'm, I, I read this as Pixar establishing right away that it conceives of digital animation as a kind of physical virtual puppetry rather than any kind of abstract form of writing in motion, right? It conceives of, you know, essentially character, character animation as rigging, as physical rigging and physical moving, not as something much more magical and mysterious and uh, technological and abstract. Traditionally, self-reflexive forms, they, they tend to critically implicate the film and the filmmaker and also the audience in the process of mediation, even when there's still a kind of mystery there. Typically speaking, especially you know when, when film scholars and film critics will note these moments of self-reflexivity, usually it's in the service of some kind of self-implication. Um, uh, an involvement in the film and a revelation of the film kind of pointing to itself as mediating, right? Um, but in the blockbuster and in Pixar, Pixar animation in particular, um, very often self-reflexivity um, is, is paradoxically used to really just cover up um, what the film is actually doing and, and especially to cover up its own reductionism and its, its own reduction of form, of moving image form to physics. So in addition to the hand of the animator trope that we get at the outset, Pixar uses um, all kinds of self-reflexive forms to cover up what they're doing, to excuse what they're doing. And it, it, it is, it's so strange because it's like, look at me. You know, look, we're animating. Look, we're pointing to ourselves as animating. And yet it's being used not for any kind of implicating critical revelation. It's being used to say, yeah, yeah, we're animating, you know, in this new, narrow, uh, physical way that might be newly spectacular because it's, you know, physical in a way that hasn't been experienced, but nevertheless um, is reductive. So another way that um, uh, Toy Story will do this is through its Raggedy Ann uh, and Andy conceit, right? Um, the whole thing where um, the the toys seem to be dead, right? Or, or just inert objects, but then they come to life, right? And it, it seems like, you know, they're referring to other stories where this happens and they're, they're, they're you know, allegorizing the process of coming to be animate, right? They're, they're lifeless, they're lifeless things and then they must be brought to life and, you know, uh, we do this, the audience helps to do this with our imagination. And there's all these ways which um, we, we can read this in a self-implicating and self-reflexive way, but that's not ultimately what happens in Toy Story. The problem with this, I want to suggest, is that in kind of moving back and forth between the inanimate and the animate, what, what Pixar is actually doing is 
establishing a pretty rigid and polarized opposition between the animate and inanimate that Pixar films will never violate and never complicate, right? So it's a very zero-sum, all-or-nothing world of animation that we see in Toy Story and then will be picked up by all copycats uh, afterwards. Either a figure is able to move within and against a world filled with passive things and forces, or it is banished to the world of passive things and forces. So this is very different from the kind of play and abstract experimentation that you, and ambiguity that you'll see in former animation history, right? So, um, you know, we talked about the moment in Cinderella, that playful moment when the drop um, of hot scalding tea kind of just, you know, it, it seems to be just part of the passive world of, of objects and forces um, uh, with its absolute regularity. But when the social abstract meaning of the situation changes, then the, the, the drop suddenly becomes more animate, you know? Not fully alive, but not fully just dead and mechanistic. It's sort of in between ambiguously. And it's like, you know, it's almost like I said, um, hmm, yeah, I guess I'll go back up because he doesn't really want to drink, right? I mean, that's what I hear in my head when I'm experiencing that kind of delightful passing moment. There is no ambiguity like that ever. That That is banished from uh, Pixar animation. Um, you know, there's all kinds of other examples we can talk about. So uh, I'll just quickly reference you know, uh, uh, early, early um, Disney uh, classic now, you know, before the golden age, Walt Disney's Steamboat Willie, right? This early sound uh, cartoon. In it, uh, Mickey and other figures, you know, they, they, are, they are animated figures and they are set against relatively stable drawn backgrounds that are, you know, repeated uh, for the sake of uh, time and, and labor and cost saving. At the same time, there are so many other elements in this, in this environment that um, has a kind of quasi-animation, quasi-lifelike uh, character to it. I mean, right from the beginning, we see he's on a steamship and the, the smokestacks are kind of uh, contracting and expanding in these rhythmic patterns along with sounds um, that make it seem like they're, like they're characters of their own. You know, they're not complete characters. They're not like Mickey, but they're also not like the static backdrop. Um, and the whistles, the whistles on the ship um, have a kind of animated, willful personality as well, right? And they kind of dance around and they do kind of surprising, ambiguous things. And, you know, what Pixar does is it says, look, we can do that too. We can bring all kinds of surprising, interesting, fun movements to inanimate objects. But as they do that, and as they, they have a plot that shows the, them go from inert to alive and inert to alive, they they totally banish anything in between. And really, I would say the abstractness of animation along with it. So you'll see you know, Woody sprout up and start talking and gesticulating from an inert condition. You'll see him instantly succumbing to gravity and falling contingently to the ground when a human shows up. 
you know, you'll see, you'll, you'll see them, you know, break the rules with Sid in order to scare the bejesus out of him and make him, you know, treat toys in, in a nicer way. And it's like, oh, this is so self-reflexive and you're acknowledging that there are rules and they're arbitrary and you could change them in an instant. But all of this self-reflexivity is hiding in plain sight. The fact that, so for example, you'll never see nor expect to see or be surprised by let's say, Woody's pull string momentarily taking on a quasi-life of its own, or his hat kind of smile or frown or something like that. Um, there's, there's no in-between. For this reason, I would say, you really don't have a sense of the whole as moving abstractly and independently together uh, in, in remote ways. Instead, what you get are individuals, hachiety, striving figures, who are asserting their wills against the inevitability of a dead world of matter and force that couldn't be changed. Kind of like globalized neoliberal capitalism in the 1990s. And we can say that while Pixar's characters function um, as themselves as like hard and shiny objects, as you know, autistic shapes and autistic objects, I think even more disastrously, the whole contingent um, um, physical volumetric hypernewtonian world that they've created out of abstract algorithms suggests just a dead mechanistic, um, fated <laughs> horizon um, that just kind of turns the entire world into one very predictable autistic object. And of course, the camera is deeply interwoven into this physics, as we saw right from the very beginning of the film, the way it tracks back from that ambiguous 2D image of clouds and sky. So as we progress through these opening sequences in the film, Toy Story cuts to a myriad of point of view shots, starting with a conspicuously inert and passive perspective of Woody zooming down a handrail. Here, the quasi-diegetic camera of the blockbuster, now fully made virtual and digital, succumbs to the mechanical <laughs> forces of gravity in this hyper-Newtonian uh, digital world. Requisite too in Toy Story are, of course, digital lens flares, suggesting that material light is variously reflecting and refracting, not just throughout the mise-en-scene, but also through pieces of glass in this virtual camera, when of course there are no pieces of glass there, right? Because it is not a physical camera. Um, if there's anything physical, it's um, hard drives, right? And encasings and fans and, and digital networks and things like that, right? It, there's, no, there's no lens to, for there to be a flare in. And what's truly sophisticated and reflexive is that Toy Story's own plot will thematize this whole this whole lens flare, you know, phenomena, um, the the mediation of physical light, the material mediation of physical light through clear glass, um, basically, you know, through through the mise-en-scene and through the cause and effect materiality of, of the story. Right? And most often, well, this will happen with glass, but it also happens with plastic. And it, it becomes actually central to the plot. So first, Sid, right, the sadistic boy next door, uses a magnifying glass 
to focus sunlight uh, onto Woody's forehead and burn a hole in a mean way through his forehead. And you know, it's mean, it serves the plot, but it also is a way of Pixar saying to us, you know, light in this world is a physical force, right? You know, welcome to the digital blockbuster. This is, if, if uh, we're gonna represent light, it's going to be highly physicalist in a way that it can sear, right? And this isn't the first time, you know, in Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977, Part of the the first Close Encounters includes these bright shining god lights, and they they literally they imprint um, these kind of almost like sunburns. I mean, they're light burns, but like laser sunburns onto the lead character, right? And so this is very much like that. Um, then at the end of the film, Woody uses the accidental focusing and refracting properties of Buzz's clear plastic helmet, which we've seen before. We've seen it refracting, you know, just incidentally before in the film. This is, this is thematized. This becomes central to the plot. Woody uses it to create a similar material burn, like we learned from the experience, the terrible experience with the magnifying glass, he uses this to light the fuse on the rocket that is strapped to Buzz, which catapults uh, up and eventually down um, uh, the whole, you know, the whole stranded gang um, toward Andy and his family. Right? They, we save the day. Right? The whole climax of the plot turns, pivots on light being physical and light being able to be physically focused. You know, and and in a way, it's almost like. It's like allegorizing the importance of having the camera be seemingly physically immersive and allowing for lens flares, right? But bringing that right into the to the um, middle of, of of our really conscious experience of uh, the problems that the, the the protagonists are undergoing uh, in the film. There's yet another way. Uh, that Toy Story is very self-reflexive and sophisticated about um, it, its own hypernewtonian physical aesthetics and the way it sort of weirdly hides, reflexively hides them in, in plain sight. So um, did you notice that so many of the jokes and the, the, the play on words and the puns and double entendres uh, in, the, in the dialogue, uh, which are cute and funny, I mean, don't get me wrong, um, they're playful, they actually work by uh, like going from a, a, a concept or a word that is more loose or open or abstract to something that is more particular and concrete and embodied. So Woody tells Sketch, uh, the character Sketch, to draw, right? But instead of it being a gun battle, um, Sketch literally draws a picture. Bo Peep tells Woody after flirting with him, I'm just a couple of blocks away, and she's passing a stack of children's wooden building blocks, right? So literally blocks. She's literally just a few blocks away. Um, Woody says to Buzz, Buzz, will you give me a hand when he's in the window and um, um, trying to accomplish something, and Buzz literally tosses his detached arm and hand to him, right? So all of these, and there are many more where this came from, take a kind of more looser figurative sense of language and that flexes the, the plasticity of language, the polyvalence, right? The multiple meanings that language 
uh, can create, right? The abstractness of language only to then anchor language in a, through a joke in the immediately material and literal. And it's as if Toy Story's writers wanted to weigh down the figurative language and attach it more directly to the material things that it was creating through abstractions. It really suggests a kind of nervous anxiety, like at all levels, right? And the creative twist is that Toy Story is actually opening up the abstractness of, of signification here in order to deny it. Meanwhile, Toy Story does not shy away from what we've called the dialectic of belief and disbelief uh, in the blockbuster, right? In Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and other films, right? It's going to keep cropping up again and again. And then, of course, is associated with the, the sort of rhetoric of belief around the, the um, effects technologies and animation technologies. Um, and that, you know, we've seen in our readings this week, the... Prince and the Karens are talking about, you know, belief and being immersed or, or non, you know, not believing and being thrown out, you know, not, um, not the, the effects and the sound design not having credibility. Um, we see this as well in Toy Story, you know, and they're, they're, I would say, anxiously trying to thematize this problem of, of belief. Um, and, and doing so not just in a, in a regular old blockbuster way, but specifically for this new phenomenology of the 3D digital cartoon. So here, Buzz is the naive believer, uh, and he believes in these kind of manufactured stories by the, the toy producer and the marketers, right? Um, and he sort of thinks that anything is possible, um, and he's got this whole universe to save, and of course it all seems silly and out of place in this humble material world. Um, and then the, the ultimate kind of, you know, figure of this is his claim that he can fly. So like the, the idea of flight, the possibility of flight is this unearthly, like in the clouds, you know, idealized, um, non-real um, symbol of what, uh, of what like a kind of pure naive belief gives us, right? So, um, you know, we, we can't go with it, right? On the other hand, we have Woody. Woody is the cynical realist, right? He's a cynical realist who is um, knows that Buzz is kind of full of crap, but he, he also is, you know, jealous and threatened by Buzz, Buzz's novelty, his attention. He's afraid of being displaced and replaced, you know, unemployed, as I would say. Um, and so he's just going to harp on Buzz and say that he just needs to give up on his fantasies, right? And his unrealistic fantasies of basically flouting gravity, right? And he's you know, gonna be consistently equating reality with gravity and say, telling him you just can't fly because gravity will pull you down, right? Uh, in a variety of very funny lines. Um, so throughout the course of the film, Woody, will, of course, learn to overcome his petty jealousy and he becomes buds, right, with 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 um, Buzz. And, you know, the, the filmmakers, Lasseter and others, they specifically thought of this as a buddy movie, right? So this is about the kind of romance between uh, these two. And that romance or that, you know, that the dialectic of that romance plays out around belief and gravity, essentially. So... Woody is overcoming his petty jealousy and Buzz must come to grips with his own grounded finitude. And, you know, basically the result of this dialectic is a kind of new synthesis, which is meant to justify 
the hyper-Newtonian phenomenology that the spectator can believe in in a grounded way. So you get belief, but belief that is grounded. And this all plays out by attributing different meanings to Woody's initially dismissive comment to Buzz after he um, uh, supposedly demonstrates that he can fly in the beginning, where in fact, you know, we can tell as spectators, he's kind of just like, he jumps, he bounces, he you know, ends up going on this little play roller coaster and that flings him up to the ceiling fan and then he goes around and around and, you know, and he comes down, he's very excited and he seems to fool all the naive Spielberg face <laughs> looking, um, uh, you know, other toys like, wow, you're amazing, you can fly. And what Woody says is that's not flying, that's falling with style, right? And that's supposed to be a dismissive you know, gravity prevails and all you're doing is like putting a twist on gravity. All you're doing is like stylizing gravity. So there's um, two, I think, key sequences that push this dialectic of this phrase forward. So first, Buzz learns uh, in Sid's house from an obnoxious television commercial that he happens to stumble upon when the TV is on. Um, that he is in fact a toy. He is a mere commodity made in Taiwan. Uh, this news devastates Buzz, and he's you know he's down, uh, and he he decides no, I'm gonna try one more time to fly, uh, to prove that no maybe this can't maybe this isn't true, um, but of course he he in a slow motion sequence he jumps off the handrail and Sid's house uh, in the in the foyer gravity takes over and he passively falls to the ground in a mechanistically predictable gravitational way and Buzz is utterly defeated. So gravity triumphs. Um, it is the uh, ultimate and insurmountable test of what is real and what literally matters. And that is that is what Buzz must learn and what we must learn for the Pixar universe, right? This is, there's no wily uh, coyote chasing a roadrunner off a cliff and then being suspended in abstract animation uh, until he just socially abstractly realizes that he's he's over a canyon uh, he looks at us and then pew, and it falls right so nothing like that you're never gonna get anything like that gravity is what matters it's the ultimate test of of reality and meaning in uh in this film then the second important sequence in this regard is the climax of the film that we've already talked about right when the rocket catapults buzz and woody uh riding on rc the car far up into the air they bail before the rocket explodes, right? And they begin falling back down to Earth, riding gravity, right? And it's scary. Um, they narrowly miss uh, the explosion when Buzz smartly detaches from it, right? So they don't, they, they escape the spectacle of total disintegration. And now they're just sort of in the uh, more subtle disintegration of pummeling down toward the Earth. And next, Buzz uses his plastic wings, pops them open, and then basically we're supposed to think that he uses, you know, um, Bernoulli's principle and kind of swoops back up into the air using, actually using the wings in a physics sort of way. Um, and then they avoid an immediate crash, right? And yay, we save the day, Buzz saves the day. Um, and Woody exclaims that Buzz is actually flying, right? In a certain sense, he's flying, right? He's not breaking the law of gravity. Um, the fundamental dogma of gravity, but he is flying, right, in a physical sense, um, not in an abstract sense. Um, and 
what Buzz does is he responds by repeating Woody's line, which was originally an insult, and now he gives it a positive twist, a positive inflection. And he says, this isn't flying, it's falling with style, right? And with this, you know, the film is really self-reflexively resolving this dialectic of belief and disbelief between the characters and for the film as a whole. Namely, I would say, Pixar's thesis is that digital animation, the new digital cartoon, is only falling with style. Essentially, it's gravity is first, you can always count on it and other physical forces in Renaissance space, you know, using linear geometry and all, all moving image um, expression is, is a way of falling with style. It's a way of putting mere twists on gravity, right? And this is such a self-reflexive kind of trumpeting, you know, announcement of what Pixar is bringing to the digital cartoon. Now, this isn't the beginning, you know, they've been working on this for years and years and years. But this is inaugurating the feature-length cartoon, and because it did so well, it, it I think, retroactively is very meaningful, that it inaugurates this whole era that spills out in every direction onto TV, although, you know, not all TV is, you know, some TV is still 2D and embraces abstraction, um, spills out into um, video games as well. And it, it creates a whole massive regime of digital cartoon animation that can't really think anything beyond falling with style. Narratively speaking, this realization also represents the solution of the film to its thematized anxieties about money and neoliberal globalization and precarity and dissolution and all the things we've been talking about. Things will fall, things will fall apart, the film seems to say. But at least we can rely upon gravity as uh, something that's consistent, right? And we can play within, we can kind of mess around and have jokes and um, adventures within this, within this reliable backdrop, right? Within this reliable, autistically structured sensory horizon. And the sophistication with which Pixar does this does not stop here. One incredibly sophisticated strategy that I haven't mentioned yet refers to sound. I call it Pixar's construction of sonic scale and traversing or, or shifting between sonic scales, which also is a, is a shifting between visual scales, but it's really um, done specifically through that digital surround sound uh, soundtrack and uh, technological uh, enveloping setup that Karen's writes so well about, right? So in many scenes, beginning the first time with um, that moment when Woody slides down the stairwell, um, a certain point of view and certain closer shots uh, of toys. So they're either the actual point of view shots or they're just really close-up shots uh, of the toys uh, are, are being paired with very loud LFE channel, you know, bass-laden, uh, surround um, soundscapes and in a sense these very much immerse us in the smaller world um, uh, that that um, kind of sits within the human scale world right so uh, it, it's like it's like putting you you know sonically in in the point of view of being you know buzz uh, 
caught up and riding around in, in that plastic roller coaster, right? Um, it sounds more overwhelming because I think the thought is that he's a smaller being and, um, you know, whereas for us, um, just sort of on the outside, uh, as a human, it might that might sound sort of like kind of light and tinny and not all that immersive. We're put, the sound perspective is opened up and made immersive because we're taking up that smaller scale point of view. Um, but what's so impressive, I mean, in, you know, I'm still critiquing it because it's still Hyper Newtonian, but it's impressive. Toy Story doesn't actually stick to this for very long. And what they'll do is they'll repeatedly cut back and forth again and again and again between a larger human scale, visual but sonic scale, where the toy's movements sound more tinny and quieter. Um, and then they'll go back, right, to the smaller toy sonic scale where everything sounds immersive and overwhelming and deeply um, bass-laden. And even more so, they'll, they'll kind of draw attention to this um, and, and often for subtle comic effects, right? So, um, and this will really happen at moments of impact in particular. So take that banister slide, right, in the stairwell. We're immersed in an overwhelmingly kind of small-scale toy sound space uh, in this POV shot, sliding down the banister as inert matter, right, inert uh, woody. Um, but the film cuts to a wide shot uh, of the stairwell and and Andy and uh, Woody right before impact, like right before you get there. And suddenly we have a different sonic scale experience. And uh, when Woody hits the little you know knob at the bottom of the uh, the bottom of the rail, it's not some big boom. It, the the LFH, LFE channel is not being engaged. Instead, it's just a kind of like quick hollow pop, you know, and then Woody, Woody bounces up. He's not injured. The audience isn't injured. There's no impact, right? Um, and, and we move on, right? So there's a kind of relief, a kind of comic relief, like, oh yeah, he is just sort of a toy and it's sort of, it's okay, right? Um, and, and so you can, if there's a kind of, play and a reflexive flaunting of that sonic shifting of scale um, to further complicate this this new hyper-Newtonian uh, digital cartoon uh, aesthetic. Now before wrapping up, I want to address a, another thematic element which I would call the, the film's like politics of history, the way it, it thinks about history and its own place in in history. And this is, you know, largely uh, kind of encoded into mise-en-scene and um, different furnishing styles and designs that are associated with different historical periods and and you know the uh, the 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 cultural ethos and social and political and economic ethos of each period. So, as I stated at the outset, the film, in many ways, conjures a mid-century modern suburban aesthetics right through its mise-en-scene particularly andy's home right but all, we also see it at the dinoco uh, gas station and pizza planet and this way pixar is following uh, uh in the footsteps not just what we said of the biographies of of lucas and spielberg and all that um but you know, thematically uh, following in the footsteps of Back to the Future, a film we didn't get a chance to look at this semester, but I recommend you go check it out. If you don't know or if you don't recall, 
uh, especially the first Back to the Future in 1985, involved a plot that took us back to 1955. 1985 looks very... It looks like the Reagan recession. It, there's homeless people. There's, the, the town square is a is dilapidated. It's a mess. Um, and we go back to the same town square in 1955, and everything is clean and shiny and new. And there's bouncy mu- 50s music playing, and you know there's a a sense of hope and possibility, and you know all that, right? And what um, we could say a lot of things about uh, Back to the Future, but I just want to suggest that what what Back to the Future does is it gives us um, the good, feel-good, optimistic feelings in a nostalgic way that we associate with mid-century modernism and its design uh, aesthetics, but at the same time gives us a hyper-Newtonian action-adventure film. Uh, so in a sense, it's sort of having its cake and eat it too, right? It it gives us the, the the pleasures of abstraction, but then infuses them and makes it an immersive uh, material experience. So it's you know taking the best of both worlds. I mean, I wouldn't say that, but right from the point of view of the film, and you could say that that's what Toy Story does with its own invocation of all of these kind of mid-century um, modern designs. But Pixar, of course, goes further, and it's even more kind of complicated and sort of nebulous because if you look at the furnishings and designs of Andy's house, the furniture, uh, you know, Dinoco and the the pizza place, it's not just 50s, right? And it's not like this film is set in the 50s or we're going back to the 50s. It's a weird combination of the 90s and the 50s together. It's like a weird... It's, it's like mid-1990s and 1950s as a strange sort of hybrid um, so that it kind of allows us to feel like, okay, it, this is happening in a contemporary world. It's, it's, ni- it's 1995, but it has a lot of the feel of that, um, of that 1950s world. And that's not it. It also puts this into contrast and so relief against the place of Sid's house, right? What's Sid's house like? Sid's house is run down. Uh, it, um, you know, it's a mess. Um, you know, if, if there's some weathering or dings and a little bit of Asianness in Andy's house, it's, you know, it's still bright and shiny and relatively clean. Um, and the opposite of tr- is true at Sid's house. But it's not just that. It's not just that it's old and dingy and not clean and more cluttered. Um, it, it also features design elements and decor, um, that, um, reminds us of the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, that's not it. I mean, there's, there's, you know, it's, it's in sort of nebulous in its own way, but a lot of what, what you see in that house is 70s and 80s, right? Which, you know, on the one hand, just suggests that, like, the Sid's family doesn't can't afford to kind of keep up with fashion and the times, right? Um, uh, but it also, you know, it associates Sid's sadism and the horror of Sid's world and, uh, you know, and the kind of, let's say, decay of middle-class life um, um, that, that, that Sid represents with these these aesthetics in between. And so in a certain way, you know, 
this is again kind of like um, a Back to the Future, right? So Back to the Future, you know, skips over all the you know the counterculture and the anti-Vietnam War movement and you know the black radicalism and all the, all the stuff that kind of messed with the fifties and goes from the eighties back to the fifties, right? Um, and sort of treats the seventies and the eighties as like uh, the sixties and the seventies as, as something to overcome. In in Sid's house, it's sort of more like the seventies and eighties, and that's the that's the nightmare, <laughs> the horror decades that sort of ruined everything. But now we have a kind of nineties fifties thing that we can enjoy as opposed to that, right? Um, and then just to just to cinch the associations, the wallpaper. Um, at least part of the wallpaper in Sid's house actually features marijuana plants, uh, right? So like, as we've read in some of our, you know, our, our, our history texts uh, this semester, right? There's like this sense of like decline and, you know, drugs and carelessness, right? And the kind of world we were getting in RoboCop, right? That it's associated with drugs. Um, and then the carpet uh, in Sid's house is an exact replica of the carpet that's featured in the Overlook hotel, this fictional hotel, in Stanley Kubrick's early early 80s horror film, The Shining, right? So that's a horror movie from the 80s, right? So media history is design history and furnishing history, which is also cultural and social and political and economic history, and it's all kind of wrapped up here. And Toy Story is essentially vilifying the, 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 those 70s and 80s moments and everything they represent, um, while affirming, you know, the, the the beautiful hybrid of the the fifties and nineties, um, and of course, you you know, you save, you sort of save Sid because you know we scare him. You, we he gets scared straight, right? He gets scared to behave like a nice boy, or at least he's supposed to by the end, right? Which interestingly enough, the toys use horror to in a so-called good way to get him to to stop being this way but that doesn't erase all these very laden uh cultural codes that we've gotten along the way um and so you know in this way toy story is really explicitly acknowledging its socio-historical context and it's acknowledging that there's been a decline in middle class um, white america and that you know it, it's desiring a sort of reboot of the 50s um, for the 90s through Silicon Valley and the nostalgia of, of, of um, mid-century abstraction now sort of rebooted through Silicon Valley abstraction, but of course it's precarious, right? Um, it's neoliberal abstraction where, you know, it's also, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so fascinating to me the way that the film will just acknowledge its place in history acknowledge that there are major problems and it does so um by by coding this through the various characters and the and, and the plot anyway so I'm, i think i'm going to wrap up the lecture here hopefully we have a better sense of uh digital visuality digital uh sonic construction ogden's um work on the autistic contiguous position and how it can help us understand the digital blockbuster, digital animation, and also digital effects, and especially as we now turn back next week to Jurassic Park and we start thinking about these um, digital dinosaurs. So thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time.